I've been building in my backyard a deck. It's a porch deck. It's eight foot by four foot. Uh, let me um, point out to you that I'm a preacher, not a deck builder. And so it's been a uh, learning process. It's been a, it's been a process that really racks my body. Um, I feel very, very worn out after I'm done with a day, uh, about three or four hours work on it. I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But this past weekend got really frustrating because on Friday I was there working on it. And Allie, my 15-year-old, opened up the door to to watch me. She goes, you know, it's raining. I go, no, it's not. And as soon as I said, no, it's not, a raindrop, I swear, this big, hit my back, and then another one that big hit my back, and then another one, and within like 30 seconds, I was soaked. It didn't blow in. It just happened right there, like boom. And uh, Jenny said, well, I I guess you're done for today. I go, I don't want to be done for today. Well, I came in because I was done for the day. So yesterday, it was beautiful. Got back out, started working on the deck, you know it, about 30 minutes into it, now the hail started to come, and the lightning, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me, and I'm going, God, why are you messing with me? That's when Jenny goes, well, maybe he's got different plans for your life, and I started to laugh. She goes, what? I said, do you know what the sermon title will be tomorrow? She goes, nope. I said, when God interferes. And that's when I realized something that I've told you before. Apparently, God doesn't want me to preach it until I live it. Does God ever mess with you? Now, I get when he messes with wicked plans. You know, in the Bible, you got the guys trying to build the Tower of Babel. God messes with them. Uh, Jonah is trying to run away from God. God messes with Jonah, right? Um, Balaam is trying to curse Israel. Every time he opens his mouth, there's a blessing. God's messing with him. Okay, so I get that. Psalm uh, 146 tells us that the Lord opens up the eyes of the blind and raises up those who are down and goes on to talk about how he loves the righteous and protects the stranger and uh, supports the fatherless and the widow. And this says, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Well, we sang a song like this at camp, and instead of frustrate, that we used, I think it was the, the King James Version, but he thwarts, but he thwarts in the way of the wicked. And thwarting is basically saying, you think you know what you're doing? I will stop you. And that's God's promise to those who are wicked, who have wicked plans. He will thwart the plans of the wicked. But what about those of us who just wanted to build a deck? That's, that's not evil. Come on. What, what's, does God ever... Exactly. It's like Robert Burns, the, 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 uh, the, the poet, the, uh, the Scottish poet, who says, The best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry, or aft gang a glee, if you're going to be Scottish about it. Um, 
Does God ever mess with people whose plans aren't bad? Well, what about a little teenage girl who was engaged to a carpenter and thought she had her whole life planned out in Nazareth until God came down and messed with her plans? Or, or, or these guys who were fishermen and thought, we like fishing. Well, we, we enjoy being fishermen for our careers. And Jesus came and started to mess with them as well. What do you do? Here's the question. What do you do when God has other plans for your life? What do you do? You know, you know which way is best. You know which way is right. You, you, you've got the right plan. and You think it's the right direction. And God says, nope. What do you do? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, verse 36, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, okay? This is a, a story in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul is really, really excited to go out on another missionary journey. Uh, I, I will tell you this, you go on one short-term missions trip, most, most of the time when people do that, their hearts are captured and they want to do it again and again and again. And that's exactly where Paul's at. He loves doing this missionary work. Uh, he's got a great team, he and Barnabas. They've been together for like five years. Uh, they're seeing some amazing things happen. He knows what he wants to do. He sees this entire continent of Asia over here beginning in Turkey and going that direction, and that's where he wants to go. That's a huge mission field. But every point that he tries to get over there, God heads him off at the pass. God keeps interfering. It begins with his traveling companions. Look there in verse 36 of chapter 15, where it says, uh, la, 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 sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord. Let's see how they're doing. Barnabas then wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia. He had not continued with them in the work. Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Uh-oh. Dream team now broken up. They parted company. Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus, Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Well, trouble in paradise here. Uh, they, they had a great thing going, but now they break up over this guy, John Mark. We, we saw him in chapter 12. He accompanied them from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then we saw him in chapter 13. He left with them from Antioch to go on this missionary journey. And somewhere down the road, he either got sick or he got discouraged or he got homesick. Whatever, he decided that he wanted to go back. And for Paul, that was it. There's no three strikes. You, you desert me. I've written you off. Now, later on, in the book of 2 Timothy, we do find at the end of Paul's ministry, Mark has come back into his good graces. He's actually said, bring Mark with you because he's been useful to me. But right now, he's had it with Mark. Uh, he doesn't need somebody like that coming back with him. But this is Barnabas. 
This is Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The one who doesn't like to leave people behind. The one who loves to give second chances to people. He was the one who took Paul under his wing after Paul became a a disciple and nobody would believe in his conversion. There was Barnabas. So Barnabas says, let's give him a break. Let's give him a second chance. Paul says, nope, not at all. And now trouble in paradise. They've broken up the dream team Barnabas takes Mark and begins to mentor him. Paul takes Silas and goes the other way. Things are going much different this time than what Paul thought that they should be. No more Barnabas, no more team. What's God doing? He's messing with Paul. Now, before we find resolution on that one, I want to jump down to chapter 16, verse 6. There's more tension that builds up first because God continues to mess with Paul. Look at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 16. Now Paul and his companions um, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Remember, that's where Paul wanted to go. He sees this huge mission field, and it's the Holy Spirit that says no. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. It's like he keeps poking and prodding and God keeps saying, no, no, no. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. There's a great clip from a movie called Young Frankenstein where the the, the main character hears music and he knows that he wants to get to where the music is coming from, but it's coming from behind a wall of books, a big old bookcase. And it's a secret passage. And they find out that by taking the candle, the thing swings. Well, it keeps swinging the wrong way. And finally, he decides that he wants to block the bookcase with his body. So once he does, you see it go and you see it hit him. And then it shows his assistant, not him. And you hear this. Okay, now listen to this very carefully. And they show him, and he's smashed up against the wall. That's how I see Paul. He wants to get beyond the bookcase, and God keeps saying no. And finally, he has to learn to leave the candle alone. If God is saying no, don't go there. So why? Why is God saying no? Well, God is not saying no just to say no. There is a reason. First of all, it has everything to do with the team. Now... I want you to go back to verse 1 of chapter 16. No, no, no more Barnabas. So what do you do? Well, Paul goes to Derby, And then he goes to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Ah, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. And the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. I'm going to stop there, Marilyn, uh, just for, for time. Here's Timothy. No more Barnabas. Man, it looks like, man, God is messing with the plans. But because the dream team broke up, because God said no to that, he said yes to this young man named Timothy. Timothy is mentioned in 11 other books of the New Testament. He becomes such a close companion to Paul that Paul considers him a spiritual son. Because of Timothy, we get the books of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Timothy becomes the pastor at the church of Ephesus. And so we get the the Ephesian letter because of this. 
So you thought maybe it's going to be a bad thing that Barnabas leaves. No, because God's right there saying yes to Timothy. By the way, when Barnabas leaves, he takes Mark with him. Well, Mark's the one that writes the second gospel. And, and by the way, by this time, guess who else is on board? And Troas, Luke shows up and now is part of the traveling companion uh, of Paul. And so now we get the book of Luke and we get the book of Acts. Do you see that God maybe had a different plan than going east to Asia and, and, and breaking up this team? He goes, I gotta, I've got the next phase of ministry going on. And because of that, much of the New Testament is different because Timothy and Mark are in different positions now in, in this whole thing. God did not leave Paul stranded. Timothy is brought into the story and it changes everything from that point on. God says yes to Timothy. And then he says yes to an open door. Look at verses 9 and 10. Here's what God's doing. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is just north of Greece. And if you were traveling west from Turkey, uh, you would hit Macedonia first. So Paul's got this vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. By the way, that word help, when he's saying, please come help us, it speaks of urgency, of an emergency. We need you here. So after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. You see, Luke is now putting himself into the story, saying we, we got ready, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Well, this is what's going on. So far, the message has been traveling well, okay? Because of the Roman Empire, you can go from country to country because there's peace now, because it's all part of the Roman Empire, right? And there are roads now, thank you to the Romans, there are roads to make it very easy to get from one place to the next. So the gospel has been, has been traveling well, you might say. But there's another way for it to be even more efficient, and that's to get it to Rome. Because Rome was the center of this entire empire. And God knew, God's plan was, I want the gospel to get to Rome because once it hits Rome, everybody's going to know about it. And the gospel will outlast and overthrow the Roman Empire. That was God's plan. Never would have happened had Paul gone east. God says, I want you to go west because I've got something bigger in mind, something that you don't even understand, Paul. I need you to go west. So he gives him an open door. While he's there, there is encouragement for him. Well, look at this. He finds now an open heart. As he goes there, verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea. We sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. And from there, we traveled to Philippi. Now we get the book of Philippians, right? Which is the church at Philippi. There is no church right now in Philippi, but now Paul is going to Philippi. It was a Roman colony. It was the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and they stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. They were looking for a place of prayer because there was not even 10 men that were Jewish in this, in this area. Uh, the Jewish tradition said you can't have a synagogue unless you have 10 uh, Jewish men. And if you didn't have 10 Jewish men, you couldn't have a synagogue, you could at least go down to the river and have a place of prayer. 
So they knew that this was not even a Jewish center, that this was very Gentile. And as they were going there, they went down to find some men down by the river. This is what we find, though. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. By the way, if you ever have been told or at some point thought that Paul hated women because of what he writes about women in here, nothing could be further from the truth. So many times Paul says, I have depended upon these women, their help, their partnership in the ministry. Uh, Some of the, the prominent women of the Greek culture would open up their homes and churches were started in their homes. It was Christianity that actually raised the value of women so that they were equal to men. That was a very progressive thought back in the ancient days Everybody else would put men way up here and women down here, not in Jesus. Paul said, in Christ there is no male or female. They're all the same. We go back to the Garden of Eden when we were partners together, not having a hierarchy. So don't ever think that Paul would say that women are second class and that he hates women. He actually commends women for their partnership. So that's just put that aside. Just know that. If somebody wants to get into an argument with with you, show them all these places where Paul commends the women that that were uh, so vital to his ministry. Just like Jesus had women that were vital to his ministry. So they show up and there's not even any men there. It's all women. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Remember last week I said that salvation comes from God. It's a God work. Here it is again. God was drawing Lydia. He opened her heart so that she might uh, uh, believe the message. And she was blessed because of the message. But God used her as a blessing for Paul. Because here's this one gal who says, you know what? I believe this message and I believe that that strengthened Paul I believe that that made Paul absolutely confident about the message. And she was a little trickle that would eventually become this mighty roar of a cascade that would flow through a brand new continent. And it would overthrow an empire. Christianity. Faith in Jesus. As more and more people would come, millions of people would come to Christ. But it started with Lydia, this gal that had come over to Europe to make a living. And what she found was true life, not just a living in this purple cloth that she did. So we see an open door, we see an open heart, and finally we see an open home. If you look at verse 15, it says this. When Lydia and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord... Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Folks, we now know, tradition will tell us, that that it was in Lydia's house that the first church in Europe was ever established. It was such a small little gesture. Hospitality. Come stay at my house. But from that became the stronghold of Christianity in the Western world. And you and I have our faith due to this gal opening up her home, really, truly, to the gospel, to to, to how God would use this small idea 
And so we see the open door, we see the open heart, we see the open home. Now, what does that mean for you and I? Well, God's going to mess with you. God's going to mess with your plans. I promise you that. He will mess with you. You'll say, we should do this. And God will go, "Mm, no, good plan, but I got something better. And so, first of all, I think that we need to trust. I think one, one thing we learned from here is we need to trust in God's sovereignty despite appearances. You know, a long time ago, people believed that God interacted with people. Long time ago, that, that was kind of the, the norm, to know that we have a God that came down and interacted with his people. It was, though, back in the 1700s in the Great Enlightenment that all of a sudden we said, well, maybe he doesn't really get involved. Maybe he's just like this great watchmaker that started it all and then walked away. Those are called deists, by the way. And let me ask you, in your faith, are you a follower of Jesus or are you just a deist? In other words, do you actually see God at work every day in your life? Or do you live practically like he started it all and then walked away? You see, the Bible tells us that he stays involved with us. And though we may have chosen differently, we can trust that his plans are best when we're working on our deck and it begins to pour. We can trust God. When the conflict at work rages on and on with no resolve in sight, we can trust When your child seems lost to the grace of God, seeming like he's turned his back on God, God's in control. When the tragedy of a little girl drowning in a kayak accident with her daddy, and you don't have any answers for that, God can be trusted. Paul said to the the Philippian church, again, that started there in Lydia's house. He said, all of the stuff that you might see as negative that happened to me, he says in Philippians 1, I I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. See, Paul saw that God was going to use it, even the bad stuff. And he says in Romans chapter 8, we know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So we need to trust Number two, we need to submit. You know, my plans might be great. God's are better. My thoughts might be really great. His are higher. I have to submit my will to his. Why? Because that's crucial to my growth as a disciple. Along my spiritual journey, becoming like Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane said, I don't want to go to the cross, but not my will but yours be done. See, God has put us where he wants us for a reason. And the stuff that's happening in our life is happening by his design. We can submit or we can fight. By fighting, I find that that hurts a whole lot. So submitting to his plan, to his will, to his way of doing things is so much better Because in the long run, it's his kingdom that's going to last, not mine. Last thing, and then we're done. I I just want you to be watching. To discipline yourself to watch. To keep an eye on God. Because to ask why is a dumb question. 
because we may never know why. But we can ask, what? What are you doing, God? What are you doing in my tragedy, in my, in my tough times? Well, when it wasn't going my way, when I, I wanted it to go this way, but you're taking me down here, what are you doing? That's such a better, that's such a better question to ask because it keeps your eye looking for things that you might have missed before. God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you doing inside of me? What are you doing inside of somebody else during this time of my life? And instead of cursing him, wondering why he has not shown up to make your life easier, it's better to make it a discipline to stop and say, God, I know you're messing with me. Now I'm going to keep my eye on you because I need to know what you're doing. So, and by the way, once you begin to ask that question, you're going to find things that will blow you away in a very good way. Adelaide Pollard, 1902, wanted to go on to the mission field, but she could not find the, the funding to go. She was very discouraged, went to a prayer meeting, and listened to a very wise elderly lady who said this prayer. She said, It really doesn't matter what you do with us, O Lord. Just have your own way with our lives. Boy, that prayer stuck with Adelaide. Couldn't get it out of her mind. She paired it up with Jeremiah chapter 8. It talks about the potter and the clay. And so she wrote a five stanza poem that encouraged her. Five years later, a guy named George Stebbins put it to music, and you know it as the hymn, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You are the potter. I'm just the clay. So mold me. Make me after your will. While I am waiting, yielded, submitting, and still. I love the last stanza because this is where it becomes very practical, folks, and then we're done. Why does it matter? Why does it matter our response to all of the times that God's messing with us? Because people are watching us. The last stanza goes like this. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see. Christ only always living in me. That's the end result is that all may see Christ living in us, the way that we respond to when God interferes.